Hi, thanks for joining us online. We're glad that you've chosen to access this message. It's so encouraging to know that God is using the ministry of Portico Community Church to touch the hearts and lives of people all across the world. If you have a story to share or a prayer request, we would love to hear from you at info at porticocanada.ca. To support our ministry, you can donate online by clicking on the donate button at the top right of your screen. Once again, we're so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this message from God's Word will deeply impact your life. Has that ever happened to you? You got on a plane and you sat beside yourself? You're kind of like, whoa, what's going on there? Okay, quick question. How many of you have been told that you look like somebody or somebody they know looks like you? Quick show of hands. Whoa, pretty much everybody in the room. Isn't that amazing? It's incredible. It's what they call the doppelganger effect, that there is a double or another identity that is just like you somewhere in the world. Think about that carefully. Somebody already has your identity. They just don't have your credit card and your bank account yet, but they have your picture. This happens to me. It happens to me actually quite regularly. I was going through security. I was at the airport. I was on a flight. And you know what that's like, right? Strip search, go through the machine, x-ray down and the whole thing. And that's not when you want to have conversations with people. But I'm going through and the border guard, the security guard is there and he looks up and he goes, you're him, right? And of course, I'm just trying to go to my plane and I'm thinking, well, who's him? And I said, Who, who's him? And he goes, well, you're him, this guy. Look at the screen. Now, I don't know whether I should be honored or offended. And I think, you're holding my ID. You're basically holding most of my life. You already know I'm not him. I think we share a nose. That's what we share. But apart from that, and it's happened more than once with this particular individual. So Liam and I were new brothers. Boom, boom. He's going to be in my life. But it's not only him. Look at this picture. Oh, no, 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 that's the wrong picture. That didn't quite give you the right image. It's this shot that is more like the... Uh... <laughs> okay, maybe not. What do you mean, yeah, right? Oh, come on. Feeling the love in the room today. But it happens where people... I was on my way a couple of years ago. I was on my way to the Toronto, the Canadian Automotive uh, International Auto Show. And I enjoy going down. It's just part of a hobby. And so I got there one evening. And I was with a friend. And I went to buy my tickets. And the girl at the ticket booth, she looked right at me. And she said, I know you. That's not a good statement to start with. When you're not in your own city, you don't know the woman that's there. And I'm thinking, how do I know you? And so she says, I know who you are. And then I'm looking at her, and I said, oh. And she goes, it's okay. I won't tell anybody. (laughs) I'm glad Laura wasn't with me on that particular day. (laughs) And I said, oh. And she goes, you're this guy. (laughs) She goes, "You're, you're him. You're Ryan Stiles. I won't tell anybody if it's you. And I said, if it is me, can I get in for free? She goes, no. Then I said, then I'm not Ryan Stiles. I'm still Doug Ryan, and I'd like my ticket to go to the car show. It happens all the time. There's this whole double thing that goes on where we have somebody that looks like us, and people go, hey, you look like so-and-so. I want you to think about the person that others have said you look like, or maybe that you know people have indicated you look like, and hold that. Just hold that in your mind for this morning, and I'm going to come back to that in a little while. Get your Bibles out, get your apps out, and get your notes out. We're in a series that's called This is Living, Choosing Joy 
in life's everyday moments. We're in the book of Philippians. So if you turn to Philippians chapter 2, and if you're visiting today, welcome to Portico. Great to have you here. It's an all-campus broadcast day. We have all of our campuses joining us, and it's so good to be able to speak to our entire community on Thanksgiving weekend like this. And we've been looking at the series of messages out of the book of Philippians, and this is where Paul, who had visited Philippi in around 50 A.D., He established a church. Some 10, 11 years later, he's now in Rome. He's under imprisonment. He's under house arrest, chained to an imperial guard. And he's in less than desirable circumstances. You would agree, yes? Okay, interactive church. Good, stay with me now. And then 10, 11 years later, it's around 61 AD, his friends back in Philippi, a Roman colony where he established a church, he hears that they're going through some difficult times. They're experiencing persecution, financial hardship, rejection, because here's what we know, that Rome was anti-Semitic, had rejected Judaism, and any sect of Judaism, such as Christianity, was also being persecuted. So he's hearing about his friends that are experiencing economic challenge, relational challenge, even intimidation and threats, and he writes to them, even though he's in the middle of the same thing, he writes to them, and in his letter that he writes, he goes, I want you to know that you can choose joy in life's everyday moments. You go, whoa, whoa, just a minute. I'm being intimidated. I'm being threatened. I'm being persecuted. There's economic sanctions against me. And Paul goes, I know. I'm chained to an imperial guard. But you can still choose joy. And so if you're a recipient of the letter, you're you're going, "Paul, Paul, how do we do this? And so last week, if you were journeying with us, you'll remember that we learned together, Pastor Rick spoke here and our communicators at the other campus, and we were talking about this, that, that when we choose to follow Christ, we know that we're going to be treated differently in this world. And our, our belief and our faith and our trust in God is going to put us into a countercultural experience. And Jesus warned his followers, he said, this is going to happen. He said, don't be surprised if the world hates you, it hated me first doesn't mean we go out looking for it. It doesn't mean that we react and we rebel against it. It just means we're aware of it and we understand that when that happens, that we're going to experience situations that are less than joyful and we have a choice to make. Do we become in, you know, kind of uh, caught up and embroiled in it or do we choose joy? And we also learned last week that there are times, and I love the image, Pastor Rick used a bunch of pictures here, and he said, some of you look like a kitten, and some of you look like a monkey. I was watching, and some of you look like the big bear. Then he put a pig up. I don't know what that was all about. Anyhow, he said, which, which image are you like? And where we were driving at in that thought is, we're all different. We're all different. Our personalities, our temperaments, our backgrounds, and yet what we discover is that in Christ, that I have to choose to get along with everyone. It demands that following Christ, trusting Christ, demands that I will choose to live in unity with all people. So that means when you take those thoughts together, we are always going to be living in situations where we're going to be challenged and joy is not going to be the intuitive response. Sometimes it's frustration, sometimes it's fear, sometimes it's pain, it's anger. In fact, some of you this morning, that's what you're living in. You're going, you don't know about my marriage, you don't know about my health, you don't know about my bank account, Doug. You don't know the people I just drove to the church with today. I mean, that was a challenge. And so there's all kinds of things in our lives that create challenge for us. And so when we use words like joy, our first thought's happiness. That's temporal. That's fleeting. That's going to go. It's all circumstantial. Paul would write to believers, and he goes, no matter what you're going through, if your doctor sat you down this week and said, you know, you're dealing with cancer, and it just sobered you up and shocked you, Paul would say the same thing. It wouldn't change. He goes, you can still choose joy. And I'm going to show you how you can do that. 
And if he says, and you're in the middle of the worst relational meltdown, you can still choose joy. And if you've just experienced the highest, most exciting moment, maybe you just had a brand new child, you got a promotion at work, and everything is going great, and you're just thinking, life couldn't get better. And he goes, you're happy, but still you can choose joy. Because joy is the thing that really gets us through life, and that's what it is. And so these believers receive this letter, Paul writes to them. And please remember this, when we read the letters in the Bible... They're not written as a series of articles that they address individual problems. They're a letter. They're inspired by the Holy Spirit written to a group of people where the Holy Spirit moves the the mind and the thought of the person to write down what he knows they're going to need. God knows what we need at the right time. So Paul would write to them and said, here's how you can choose joy. And I want to take us into this. Get your Bibles out and let's have a look at this. We're going to go to Philippians chapter 2. And if you'll go down to verse 5, follow as I read. And please keep your Bible open. I'm going to go back into the text today. Paul would write to these believers and he said, here, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. Therefore Jesus exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this text. Now we often quote it, we read it, we'll do it at a communion service, we'll do it, we'll emphasize it with a message, or we love to share with people, you know, there's a day coming when every knee is going to bow and they're going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord and he's going to be ruler of all. But remember the context. Remember where Paul wrote this. He's writing to them saying, oh, by the way, you're going to live with difficult people. You're going to be treated difficultly in this world just because you love Jesus and you're following Jesus. And he goes, and when you're treated like this, he gives us a secret. He gives us an insight into how do we find joy. And I want you to have this. And if you're taking notes, look at what Paul says in verse 5 right here. In your relationships with one another, and here's the key, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That should, ask, that should beg a question right away. What's the mindset of Jesus? How, how do we do that? How do I incorporate? And what did Paul mean when he said you should have this mindset of Jesus? And then what he does is he begins to enumerate or he lists out the attributes of who Jesus is and he shares it. So I want to give you some thoughts to take away because I want you to be able to choose joy no matter what you're going through. You ready to go? Nudge your neighbor, wake him up, let's get this together because I know turkeys are waiting for you when you get out of here. All right, here we are. Number one, write it down. The mindset of Jesus is this. It's the willingness to relinquish personal status. Now think about it. Paul's chained to an imperial guard. He's living in the epicenter of Rome, the civilization, the most powerful civilization on the earth at the time. So he is surrounded by all of the visual statements of what it is to pursue and achieve status in life. An imperial guard was the elite of the elite. They were the Roman war machine. And to have the privilege to serve the emperor, to serve Caesar, that was the highest calling you could have. So he's chained to one of the members and repeatedly would change this over the course of the day so different people would be chained to his wrist. But these were the men that were the best of the best and they'd worked to achieve that status and to be selected by Caesar to come to Rome. Wow, it doesn't get any better than that. 
And then Caesar himself is considered to be a god, and so he, he chooses to call himself a god. He wants people to worship him like a god. You can't get any higher than that. And then you have the Senate. These are the aristocrats, the wealthy people. They're the ones that are controlling and influencing society. So Paul was in the middle of everything where he was watching people. Everything was about status, and people were willing to do whatever was necessary to get better status in life. Because when you have status, you have recognition. Some of you are wondering, what's with the ladder? See, the ladders of success, they, they were part of Rome as much as they're a part of today. In Rome, people would do whatever they needed to do. If you were trying to work your way up the Roman society, you would use bribery, you would use fraud, you would use intimidation, you would do whatever you needed to do to climb the ladder because the higher you get on the ladder, the more status you have, and the more status you have, the more people supposedly would respect you even though they really wanted to kill you because status doesn't give you anything. It's only in your own mind, really. And so people were doing this, and in that culture, Paul's writing to his friends back in Philippi, and he goes, be, be careful, because if you get caught up in this mindset, which is the antithesis of the mindset of Christ, you see, the mindset of our culture, the mindset of our world is the higher the status, the better you are in life. And Jesus gives us the opposite picture. He says the mindset of Christ was that he actually was willing to relinquish personal status. So Paul, in our, our note, in our text, if you go back into verse 5, he said this about Jesus. He said, who, who being in his nature, the very essence or equal to God. In other words, you can't go any higher. And no, I'm not going higher. Uh, my insurance is good for three steps. That's it. <laughs> who being in very nature God. Jesus was at the zenith, the pinnacle. He couldn't get any higher. He spoke and the worlds came into being. He was pure light. Everything had banished the darkness. He is God in his fullness. And he goes, listen to me. Jesus didn't consider his personal status something to be held on to. He willingly surrendered it. He relinquished it, and he descended down the ladder. He came down because he saw what sin had done to humanity. And he goes, I don't need status to give me any kind of uh, significance and importance in life. I'll surrender status if I can serve into somebody else's betterment. So he comes down because he recognized what sin can do. But it's funny how we're always wanting to go up the ladder. So we move this way, and we try to ascend the ladder, and we go, no, 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 no. No, we don't. Yes, we do. We do. So think about it. How many of you remember when you got your first job? Some of you are still waiting for that day. Yeah. Got your first job. We were happy to get a paycheck, right? So you get your first job, and you walk in the doors, and you're all excited, and you're meeting everybody at work, and you realize there's a big work pool, and you're there, and you go, oh, this is great. I got a job. And you show up, and you go, hey, they got a name tag. I don't have a name tag. How do I get a name tag? Well, it means you've got to be more than a temporary employee. And you finally, you earn your first name tag and you're feeling pretty good. I got a name tag. And remember the day you got your name on a desk plate? Whoa, you've made it. Some of you are still working to get a business card. Because when you get your name on a business card, it's, all, you're, you're, it's a home run, right? Little symbols of status that we have that give us a sense of significance. And we, we don't even realize how much they play into our life. And they affect the mindset that we live with. So if you go back into the job scenario, it's like this. You know, you start off and you're here. You're just glad to have a job. And then you you get hired in and you look over and you see, hey, how come Bill has a cubicle and I don't have a cubicle? Like I'm working in the general area. Bill has a cubicle. So you work hard and you get an office cubicle and you go, I got a cubicle with a nameplate. I'm doing pretty good. And then as you're working in your cubicle one day, you realize as you're watching people come and go that there's people going to the elevator and they're pushing buttons on the elevator and going... We have people who work on the second floor. How do you get to the second floor? You work harder, don't you? You with me so far? 
you work harder to get to the second floor, and you one day get to the second floor, and you go, I'm now one of those people on the second floor. All the flunkies are on the first floor. I'm on the second floor. And you let people know, I work on the second floor. And you get up there, and you go, I don't have an office with a window. I'm on the second floor, but I want an office with a window because a window has a view. And you're there working for the window with a view, and you work hard. Some of you are just going, really? There's a second floor at my workplace? There is. And you work hard, and you finally get that office with a view, and you're there one day, and you're looking, and you see your friend driving in who works there, and his car goes underground. And you're going, there's parking here? How come I'm on the GO train? There's parking here? And you work because you realize there's parking spaces. So you work hard, and one day you get a parking space, and you tell everybody, I parked underground. Because you want people to know where you are in the building and what your status is, right? And it gets worse. You realize there's more than two floors in the building. And you're not going to get up to the rest of those floors because they own the business. And unless you take them out, you're not going to have that business. I just use that to illustrate. It doesn't matter. It could be our clothes. We do it with our clothes because we buy them with labels because they're important. Here's an inside tip. Go to Value Village. The labels are there. They're cheaper. They're cheaper. But everybody thinks you paid the money for them, right? And then you can wear the label. And make sure they see the label. And in fact, if you own your jeans, just rip them up and people will think you paid a fortune for them. (laughs) I'm just saving you lots of money, people, because what we do for status is amazing because the mindset that we get trapped in in our culture is I somehow have to get up the ladder. And if I can get up the ladder, people are going to recognize. You know how we know that status is important? Because we start to embellish our jobs if we don't feel there's enough significance in our job. You know, we'll we'll add details or we'll, we'll kind of just paint a rosy picture or maybe fabricate a little bit so that people go, oh, that's a really interesting job. It's like two men got into a conversation, and men do this. I don't know why. It always comes down to this. And the first guy asks the second guy, you know, so what do you do for a living? And he immediately thought about it, and he goes, well, I'm a, uh, I'm a hygienic engineer. And the guy looks at him, and he goes, you're a janitor. He goes, yeah. He says, what do you do? Oh, he says, well, I'm an optical decontamination engineer. You're a window washer. It really depends on what you put your emphasis on, but it's all about status. And I come back to this, and here Paul writes to these people, because when you're in the middle of severe persecution and hardship, it's hard sometimes to break the mindset. But verse 6, look in your Bibles, Philippians 2, verse 6. I want you to see this. It said, Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. He, he didn't have to strive. He didn't have to flaunt it. He didn't have to go after it. He could willingly, and he chose to willingly set it aside. And I started to walk this out in my mind. He descended from omnipotence into obscurity. We're always going from obscurity into awareness. And Jesus goes, I I don't need that. I'll I'll go from all power to limited, if that's what it takes. And he went from riches down to rags, and he went from being a sovereign to the form of being simply a servant. And our challenge is, is that we're always struggling because we always want to go higher and higher and higher. And Jesus gives this ultimate picture one day when he has all of his disciples together, and he knew that the end was near. He's going to face the cross. And they gathered for the Passover meal, and then he did something which just, was, just mortified the guys that were there. He took off his outer garments, wraps the towel around his waist, picks up a basin, and he starts to wash their feet. 
They go, no, you can't do this. You're our, you're our rabbi. You're, you're one of the ones that you've been working your way up the ladder because look at the Pharisees and look at the Sadducees and look at the Sanhedrin. They love the top rung. They want the places of honor at the banquet. They love the flowing robes. They want the crowds to call out their name. They want to be recognized. And you're down here at the bottom where the people who are not even called by name wash the feet. And Jesus goes, you have to understand, if you're following me, then that's what we do. We relinquish personal status. And we don't have to have personal status to give us that sense of comfort in our life that we trust. And so Jesus even followed up. Look in your notes, Mark 10, 45. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be served. He said, but he came to serve. Jesus willingly relinquished everything because he knew that he had to deal with that sin issue. And he chose to do that for you. And he chose to do that for me. And so when Paul writes to the believers in Philippi, and he goes, so what are you in the middle of? Is it anything that would compare to what Jesus gave up? And he goes, if you want to know how to discover joy in your circumstance, one of the ways to do it is to have the mindset of Jesus. And the mindset of Jesus is when you're willing to relinquish your personal status. All right, if you're taking notes, number two, write this down. The mindset of Jesus also encompasses this. It's this willingness to relinquish personal comfort. Not just status, but it's comfort. So Paul knew that the persecution was real, that the hardship, the economic hardship was taking a toll. It wasn't easy to be a follower of Jesus. He understood that. And so he reminds the Philippians of the choices that Christ was making. And Christ had chosen to climb down the ladder of personal comfort. He, he was willing to relinquish everything that he had in order to serve him. In fact, look in your, if your Bible is still open, Philippians 2 verse 7, it says this. Jesus gave up his divine privileges. He gave up his divine privileges. He had access to unlimited power. He understood what riches were truly all about. But he gives up divine privileges. And here's the statement. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. He didn't come. Think about the comfort side. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came as a helpless infant. He didn't come with all the strengths of deity. He came in the constraints of flesh. He felt grief and pain and hunger and loss and sorrow. Jesus relinquished, he willingly relinquished all the things that would be personal comfort. He wasn't born into Roman upper uh, aristocratic society. He chose to be born into Jewish obscurity. And even when you look at the culture that he was born into, you realize he could have chosen to be born into a much better status in life, but he was born into virtually an unknown family in an unknown location. And some of the writers and some of the people even said, can anything good come from Nazareth? He wasn't worried about his comfort and what his status is. But I notice in life that when, when we start to grow and mature, comfort becomes important to us, doesn't it? It does. Comfort's important. Just try going a summer here without air conditioning. Comfort's important to us. And it, it changes. There's something that happens. There's a, a subtle mind shift, mindset shift that happens with, when it comes to our comfort. So let me explain it this way. When Laura and I were first married, we've always managed to take vacation, go on holidays together. We would maybe something not elaborate, but we try to get away, try to be together, have some time together. But I remember when we first started out, we were first married, we were on those, you know those entry-level incomes? 
where it's really not enough to pay your bills, but you dream that it will one day. We're on those levels of income. So we're on our entry-level income. So when we would sometimes travel, we would plan to stay overnight in a motel. And we were, we were the ones that would always be looking for the bargain basement deals. This is before you could even search the internet, and you'd be scouring and looking for a bargain basement. So some of you, you're thinking Motel 6, we were like Motel 2.5. <laughs> you know that little prayer that you do at night? Good night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs... See, you know where we stayed. That's the deal. That was our prayer. That was our sincere prayer. So we would always stay like here, Motel 2.5. And then when things got a little bit better, we had a little better comfort level in life, you know, we had a little more income coming in, we were able to go to Motel 6. And do you know what? They would give you coffee packets in the room. That was amazing, just to have coffee packets. It was instant, but it was coffee, and it was in the room. As things in life got a little bit better, we were able to do something a little bit more. We could go to the Best Western. Yeah. They sometimes give you breakfast. Yeah. You know those pre-made waffles? Yeah. But it was breakfast. And you could power through that stuff. Things are doing okay. We're doing okay. We're raising our family. We're, our comfort's important to us. We're not going 2.5. We're not going 6. We're going to the Hampton. Oh, I know our Hampton crowd now. You've been there. They treat you well. You know you can get two beds in the room. You don't even have to share a bed anymore. It's beautiful. I love my wife, but sometimes I love my sleep. We go to the Hampton because you get two beds. You get a hot meal for breakfast. It's where we love to stay. Not always. We're still thrifty. But there is a place that I'm aiming for. It's, no, I can't go there yet. I don't have the money. <laughs> It's called the Fairmont. You know, oh, some of you have been there. The Fairmont, the place of my dreams. Someday I hope to get to the Fairmont. Some of you, you already live there. You go, ah, it's not that big a deal. You're, you got your sight set on the Ritz-Carlton. Well, that's like heaven. If I hit the Ritz, then Jesus has come home and we're right there, right? So why do I say that? Comfort is just a matter of perspective. Maybe it's not motels. Maybe it's your house. When you first got married, your parents were glad that you left. You were 40. You needed to leave. <laughs> you got a basement suite, and then you get into a small apartment, and then you, you get married or you move in with some friends, and, and you get a condo, and you think life is going really, really good, and then you go, I really should have a house, and you buy your starter home. You remember your starter homes? Everybody remember those? You were happy if it was three bedrooms and one bathroom. That was great. And you learn how to live with that. And then after the starter home, you move on to your family home. And now, man, I need four bedrooms and I need three bathrooms and I need a finished basement. Oh, I got a woo in the room. Somebody's just dreaming with me right now. And that was our family home. And then those of you that moved out of that phase, your kids start to move out of the house, then you move to your dream home. And your kids are going, why didn't we go there when we were with you? Because we just wanted you out of the house. And then you go to your dream home. Here's the beautiful part of that story. After your dream home, your kids put you in a retirement home. <laughs> so be careful where your comfort is. You go, whoa. It's amazing how to understand the mindset of Jesus, we become so acclimated to our culture that we feel like we need to have everything culture says we should have. And we will do everything to pursue and acquire it. And Jesus said, but I'm willing to relinquish even my personal comfort for the sake of serving the needs of one another. 
Jesus said to those that were listening to him, he said, you know, the birds of the air have the nests and the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Was he lamenting his situation? No. He was talking about a willful choice, something that he chose to do, that sometimes we get so concerned about our own sense of comfort that we forget the bigger picture of what the kingdom is all about. Is Jesus saying that it's wrong to have material possessions and wealth? No, not at all. I think Joseph of Arimathea was an extremely wealthy man, and he was part of following Jesus. He made uh, provision available to Jesus that most of us wouldn't have the ability to do. uh, Barnabas was another wealthy man, able to sell property and give it away. Nothing wrong with wealth. Everything kept in balance. It's a matter of the mindset. And so Paul would write to the Philippian believers, he goes, you're living in a culture that's all about acquisition and you see people around you and they're building bigger homes and bigger villas and they're taking better vacations. And he goes, and you're feeling the pinch of following Jesus because you're being ostracized or you're being marginalized or you're being persecuted. And he goes, you can choose joy because your mindset is not about what you're going to have and acquire in this life. Your mindset is about the mindset of Jesus that status isn't important to you neither is your comfort important to you. Because you recognize, that, you recognize that life is so much more than those elements. And so Paul brings that into clarity and into focus for us. In fact, Matthew chapter 16, 24, it's in your notes. Jesus said this, Whoever wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Jesus was encouraging us to consider carefully. He said, for some... You have to recognize what the obstacles are that are keeping you from being a follower of me. And others, you have to recognize there are opportunities that are luring you and attracting you away. And to be my follower, you've got to give up obstacles and opportunities and get focused on me. That's the mindset shift. And when you do that, and comfort is no longer your driving motivation, he goes, you'll be able to find joy no matter what you're in the middle of. So you've got the status and the comfort. If you're taking notes, write down one more today. When you look at this, and it's this whole area of the willingness to relinquish personal security. You have to be willing to give up your personal security. That's a hard one because we will fight to the death to preserve our life. And yet Jesus said, if you really want to live, you have to be willing to what? Give up your life. And you go, is he asking us, you know, to kill ourselves? No, not at all. I was 22. I was single. I had a good friend. Called and said, hey, can we get together? And I said, yeah, sure. Friends do that. We were sitting together, and we didn't always get together that often. I thought it was unusual that he wanted to meet with me. We're sitting, and we're chatting. Then all of a sudden, he said, have you ever thought about your life? And I thought, well, many times, but not that hard. And he goes, what would happen if you died? That's an easy answer. I'm dead. He goes, no, no, are you prepared to die? So I thought we were doing the salvation conversation. Yeah, I'm good. You know, I trust Jesus. I'm going to be okay. He goes, no, have you taken care of your affairs? Do you have life insurance? How many of you have one of these friends? I'm not going to ask you if you're one of these friends to read your hand, but how many of you have... So all of a sudden, 22 years old, and my friend is in front of me, you need a whole life insurance policy because you don't know when you're going to die and you need to cover it. So before we're done, it seemed rational to me. I'm 22. I'm living recklessly, I guess. I don't know. And he goes, you could die. I'm climbing ladders in a service. You could die at any moment. You should have life insurance. And so I did what any one of us would do. You're my friend. I trust you. I signed up. I bought a whole life policy, life insurance policy. And I started paying ridiculous amounts of money for a couple of months. And then I had a thought. This isn't life insurance. This is death insurance. (laughs) I'm paying to protect myself in the event that I die, and I don't get anything out of it. Somebody else does. That's the most ludicrous thing I could possibly do. I'm single. What am I doing that for? So I just stopped making the payments. Now, listen carefully. 
because some of you are going, whoa, write that down. <laughs> Life insurance is a very important part of estate and financial planning, and it should be considered and used in the appropriate ways. In fact, let's talk about the latter. When we start out, it's very important to have some good basic coverage, right? Security, personal security. So you get it at level one. Here's what happens. We start to accumulate things. So whether our life is getting better or maybe we get into marriage and we go, well, now I'm worth something, at least to somebody, so I should insure myself. And so we buy another level of life insurance because we have to provide in case we're gone. That's important. Smart decision to make. And then we have kids. And we go, oh, well, what will our kids do? By the way, they don't need to become millionaires off your life insurance. You know that. They just need to be cared for. So we buy more insurance. And then we reach that stage in life where we have a four-bedroom house with three bathrooms. You know the one I talked about. We have a nice car. We got nice clothes. We got nice vacations. And life is going really well. And we realize, whoa, I got a lot vested right now. I can't afford to risk anything. I better buy some more insurance. And then we realize, by the way, make sure your spouse is on your good side. Because if she asked or he asked for an increase in your insurance policy... There's a plan. (laughs) But by the time we reach our earning potential, we realize that now there is so much for us to secure that we're spending incredible amounts of resource to provide security, and it's not just in our physical assets. We do the same. We try to protect our physical life. And Jesus wasn't asking us to put ourselves in harm's way, but what he was saying is, are you willing to relinquish your personal security And I said this before in the series, and I want to repeat it here. As followers of Christ, we as believers should have the best theology of death of anybody on the face of this earth because death is no longer an enemy for us. Death is merely a part of a transition in our life because Jesus defeated death. He defeated the grave. He is victorious. Our bodies are... How many of you know our bodies are temporal, right? Aren't you glad? I know Liam Neeson's glad because he thinks I'm his lookalike. And he's going, oh, good, the guy will get a new body and we won't be, you know, misidentified. Our bodies are temporal, but our souls and our spirits are eternal. And what Paul was saying to the believers is get your eyes focused, get the mindset of Jesus, understand that you live for what is eternal, not for what is temporal. That's why Paul, chained to the wrist of an imperial guard, not knowing whether tomorrow would be his last day on this earth or not, he was praying it wouldn't be. But he goes, if Caesar decides he's going to kill me, he goes, it's okay for me to live as Christ and to die as, we said this, to gain. So again, don't let the words just be loose on our lips. Let them be embedded or seeded into our hearts and our spirits so that we go, it's okay. I won't willingly put myself in harm's way. I don't have to worry about my future. But here's what I know. I don't have to protect my personal security. Jesus has got it. And so I can relinquish my personal security because it's safe in God's hands. And so Paul was able to say this. In fact, great verse of scripture I want to share with you. Paul writes about it in 2 Corinthians. He said, we know that when we die and leave this earthly body, we have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself, not by human hands. And he gives a beautiful reminder that God has our life fully planned out as we trust him and we walk with him. So verse 8, if your Bibles are still open, look at Philippians. Philippians 2.8, it says, And so Jesus, being found in appearance as a man, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, we know why he died. He died for our salvation. But I draw your attention to this, that Jesus was willing to relinquish his personal security because he understood the kingdom of God was greater than his own personal needs. And friends, when we look at our life circumstances, to have the mindset of Christ is to understand that we don't have to fight to protect our status. We don't have to fight to protect our comfort. And we don't have to strive 
to protect our security. That as you trust in Jesus Christ, he's got your back and he's got your future. So Paul said to the believers in Philippi, no matter what you're going through, you can choose joy because you can be a servant and feel the most fulfilled person on the face of the earth because the person with everything, they're still striving. And he goes, you don't have to be there. So what situation are you going through? And what's the struggle? See, honor is never to be coveted. It should always be conferred upon us. And what we do is we get caught up in the coveting of honor. And if we look at what Peter said, if we humble ourselves under God's mighty hand, he's the one that will eventually lift us up, right? So if we walk in humility before God. So I'll leave it this way. I started the service and I asked you this. Who is it that people have said they remi- you remind them of? Who's the double? Who's that person, that individual that came to mind? And I would propose that that individual needs to be substituted today. That when it comes to who is it that you should remind other people of, it should be Jesus. Paul said, if you have the mindset of Jesus, if Jesus is the people who people see in you, then you are where the place that joy exists. And then you can choose joy every day. Amen? So, Father, that's what we ask for today. We ask that you would help us not just to hear and to reflect upon what Paul shared with the believers, but to actually apply it in our lives. And I know that we're all in different places right now. There are men and women in this room that are going through some extremely challenging situations. And to say joy seems like such a chasm between where they are and where they need to be. But if we can learn what it is just to embrace what Jesus did and how Jesus lived, it becomes so much closer and real for us. There are others that, Lord, they're just walking through this journey and wondering, how can I maintain my faith and my trust And I pray that even today, these words would encourage us. And for those that perhaps have yet to make a decision to become a follower of Jesus, may they realize that the greatest joy in life is when we give our lives to Jesus and we trust him, the one who paid the price for our sin, who buys us and brings us into relationship with our heavenly father and establishes a better future than we could ever build for ourselves. May joy flood their hearts today. As you're still praying, your eyes are closed. If you're in the room, you're watching online today, and you'd say, Doug, I've never personally trusted Jesus Christ with my life. Well, what better weekend than a Thanksgiving weekend to do that? And while we're praying, I would love the privilege of just acknowledging you in my closing prayer. And if you would like to say yes to Jesus today, you're just saying, Jesus, come into my life. Take control. I surrender to you. If that's you today, would you quickly raise your hand? I just want to pray with you before we leave and dismiss from this room. Anyone at all? Just real fast. Thank you. Anyone else? Thank you. Yes. Anyone? Yes. Thank you. You can take your hand down. Anyone else today? So Lord, you see the hands that have been raised. You see the hearts of these people. Thank you for this step of faith that they're taking to say, Jesus, today, I want to say yes to you. May their lives be transformed. Your word says that you place your spirit in us. You make us new when we make this faith decision. And we receive that from you and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.